Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. The last 18 months have been challenging for the ag industry, and we've seen a roller coaster of milk prices throughout the COVID pandemic. As the world begins to normalize, we can now shift our focus to impacting efficiency and profitability across the dairy operation. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts at the Real Science Exchange. And tonight we're going to get really practical and dig into ways we can improve milk component production. Our first guest is Dr. Tom Overton from Cornell University. Tom, you've been a part of the Real Science Lecture Series in the past and presented some research on maximizing milk protein. And I believe that was back in June of 2020. But this is your first uh, first time here at the Exchange. So welcome. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. uh, Oh, you're very welcome. And if you wouldn't mind, could you, one, tell us what you're drinking tonight, and then two, kind of give us a, a quick overview of what the listeners can expect to hear tonight. Yeah, so I've got a gin and tonic here in uh, a thermal mug with one of my favorite sayings from Winston Churchill about never giving up. And I think that's a, a good motto for us, not only in uh, in coming out of a pandemic, uh, Absolutely. and what we've done last year plus, but also in the dairy industry as we ride that, uh, it seems like ever, ever going roller coaster. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, give us kind of a little bit of a background in in terms of what we can expect to hear tonight. So we're going to talk about milk components, and it's an area that has gotten a lot of attention, um, of course, over the over many years now. Uh, in the U.S., anyway, we've been component priced uh, uh, for for more than 20 years, I think, at this point in time. And and I but I think it's an area where we've really made some gains and continue to make some gains. And so we're going to talk about some of the trends over time. Uh, Corin Holtz, who's who's my guest tonight, will talk about some of the the science and application relative to the factors that affect components at the farm level. Uh, we'll talk about decision making. Of course, in the last year, some of these base programs that co-ops have, have put into place have, have uh, you know thrown a new wrinkle in there. And then uh, and then we'll talk about some of the newer fatty acid or milk fat or milk composition testing that's now available or becoming more prevalent across the country. Hmm. Very well, uh, Tom. I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you remember when we first met? Probably not. I know. That's uh, well, I know. I know. We talked about Mike Van Amberg. I'm sure we talked about Mike Van Amberg the first time we met yeah. him in your collegiate uh, affiliation with each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we can tell stories about him. But the first time we met, you know, I'd been hearing about this Tom Overton guy. I'd never met you, and uh, it was back at the ADSA that was held in Indianapolis. And you know how they have activities before the the ADSA sometimes a run. This happened to be an organized softball game. And yeah, I do was, remember this now. Yep, I don't remember when that was. Clay, you probably remember what year that was, but it was in the late '90s. Yeah, late '90s. And I show up, and we just kind of, uh, um, you know, split up on teams. And I was batting behind you. I, I, I hadn't yet met you yet. And uh, first time through the batting order, you smack one over the fence, home run, round tripper. And uh, yeah, then after I got done with my at bat, I went over and introduced myself, and lo and behold, it was the uh, the fabled Tom Overton. So yeah, anyway, that's not, <laughs> not quite. I think it may be the one and only round tripper of my life. How's that? So we'll we'll leave it at that. Uh, it so, might have been a little league field. I'm not sure, but might uh, have been. <laughs> uh, Tom, you've already uh, introduced your guest, and so Coronona, thank you for for joining us tonight. And we're very interested to hear your on farm perspective on this. Uh, first, tell us what's in your glass, and do you have any stories you can tell from working with Tom? <laughs> well, uh, uh, both my wife and I, Debbie, uh, we are red wine drinkers, so. Uh, Good glass of Merlot or a red blend or a Malbec. And uh, tonight I have a uh, Merlot from Duckhorn Wineries out in the Napa Valley. Nice. Actually, uh, that's where my roots are is out in the Napa, Sonoma area from many years past. Been a New Yorker since 1983, but uh, grew up in the wine country. Excellent. Excellent. And my co-host, uh, Dr. Clay Zimmerman, as always, is here at the pub again tonight. Uh, Clay, how's the hard cider tonight? Bubbly? It's good. It yep. is. Watermelon, Watermelon again? Okay, Watermelon. good. I'm, I'm in good. another rut. <laughs> Same <laughs> rut. <laughs> well, since we're uh, in the mood for sharing stories, do you have any uh, Tom Overton stories? I do. Actually, uh, <laughs> Tom and I share a passion. We are both... Um, Boston Red Sox fans. 
So at uh, at one point in his life, I think Tom uh, Tom lived near the uh, the Friendly's ice cream plant in Massachusetts. So yeah, we are uh, we're both fans of the Boston Red Sox. Ah, good deal, good deal. Well, tell you what, why don't we just dive uh, right into the topics tonight? Um, Tom, how has the focus on milk components changed over the last few years? Well, I remember back when I, you know, one of the things that one of the things that's changed is is I think people are much more thinking about pounds of fat and protein shipped per cow per day and things like that rather than or as a, as an advancement on, you know, rather than thinking just about milk yield and and milk components and that's been a that's been a bit of a shift um, uh, because I, I remember when I started a long time ago now, you know, people would use high milk production as almost an excuse for Poor components, right? They'd say, well, you know, I've got three, four butter fat and two, eight, you know, protein, but boy, I'm making 90 pounds of milk. And that just doesn't get, that just doesn't get the job done anymore. And Corwin, I'm not sure what you see out there, whether you're seeing more of that. I think it's still a work in progress in terms of how people think about components. Yes, it's uh, still a discussion we continue to have with producers. Uh, you know, they, they look at uh, what comes from the milk plant in terms of percent fat and percent protein. That's kind of what's on their on their mind all the time. And we always have to keep reminding them it's really the the pounds of fat and pounds of protein that are being shipped that are that are actually paying the bills and and thus it just becomes that combination of of yield and percents. And so we're we're trying to trying to maximize both in most cases. Um, but again, historically, it's been that the producer focus has tended to be on the on the percent side of the equation and uh, continual discussions on what what's that fat pound yield and protein pound yield. So Corwin, I was wondering how you how do you look at that metric with your producers? Do you look at pounds of fat and protein? Do you look at energy corrected milk? How, how do you how do you view that with your- so what i what i'm monitoring on a mo- monthly basis on my my client herds is is exactly those three things energy corrected milk pounds of fat pounds of protein and then also looking at a couple of ratios relative to dry matter intakes looking at uh, what our energy corrected uh, feed efficiency is and also our what i call component efficiency pounds of fat and pounds of protein combined relative to herd average dry matter intake. So those are the those are the parameters that we're we're tracking on a monthly basis. Yeah, and actually in some of our work, you know, those those two general areas, right, account for about, you know, 75% of the herd variation in things like income or feed cost, which really, you know, drives is certainly related to profitability, but also heavily related to cash flow. So um, so it makes sense to kind of key in on some things like that, I think. What are the key factors affecting uh, milk fat and, and milk protein production? Well, there's, there's a bunch of them. Um, and I think that's what makes it kind of interesting. Um, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of nutritional factors that affect, um, especially, you know, milk fat. Um, and we can get into that. We'll get into that in a little more detail here. Um, but there's plenty of non-nutritional things, genetics, seasonality, uh, heat stress, um, other types of things, or other, th- other management things at the, at the farm level in terms of how we, how cows are grouped or managed that may affect feeding behavior, which then in turn can affect what goes on in the rumen and, and affect components. So we'll, we'll dive into more of these, Scott, over the course of the, the, the podcast here. So I, I want to circle back, though, just a little bit and talk about it. Maybe, Coral, you can you chime in how, how some of your herds are doing or herds, what you see out there. But, you know, we've been, you know, as pro dairy, we've been, we've been kind of pushing this fat and protein yield per cow per day for you know, quite a few years now through things like Dairy Profit Monitor and things like that. You know, when we started, you know, we tell people that, you know, you get to five and a half pounds of fat and protein per cow per day. Yeah, you're doing okay. And then people began to kind of start doing that. So when people start doing that, we raise the bar, right? So that's what we do. And so then it became six pounds of fat and protein ship per cow per day. Then, you know, our, our you know, the, the top herds are are pushing seven pounds of components or more per head per day. And, and you don't, and again, like we, like we started out here in this podcast, you've got to do that with a combination of high milk yield and good components to go along with it. Um, you, you can't get there if you don't have both of those pieces. And uh, 
former student of mine, actually. He's a Wisconsin uh, native, uh, large dairy out there. Uh, his herd was making, uh, when he was in my nutrition class, he was making 115 pounds of milk with about a 4-1 fat and about a 3-2 protein. And, and I told him, I said, don't let anything I teach you mess up what you guys are doing out there because mm. uh, that's pretty impressive. It was 8.7 pounds of components per cow per day. It was pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that, Tom. Uh, I think go back a, a few years ago <laughs> when we really started talking about this component yield, uh, both from a producer standpoint, a lender standpoint. It's a number that the bankers, financial people are are very much aware of and, and catching on to and looking at as they work with, with their clients. Um, I think when we really got into this, it was kind of that six pounds of fat and protein. And the herds I'm working with now, our minimum goal is 6.5 and headed towards seven. That's kind of where those upper upper end herds are are definitely shooting for, and then from a feed efficiency standpoint, uh, trying to have a minimum of a, a 1.7 energy corrected milk uh, feed efficiency across the herd, and then uh, a minimum of what I call 11, uh, somewhere between 11 and 12 component efficiency. That would be pounds of fat and protein divided by the the herd average dry matter intake. So those are some of the parameters that we have as, as goals with the client farms that I'm, I'm dealing with these days. Yeah, so let's go down the road, Scott, that you were trying to, or you're starting us down about some of the factors that affect, uh, you know, milk fat or milk, milk fat and milk protein. And, you know, when you, you look at the nutritional factors there uh, that affect milk fat, a lot of that work was done by uh, people like Dale Bauman and his group, you know, continue to be done by people like Kevin Harvatine and Adam Locke um, and others. So really good scientists out there. And, you know, we, we've learned a lot about, you know, things that drive butter fat down and, and um, you know, relates back to how fatty acids are consumed by the cow or metabolized in the rumen. So we get some altered rumen, uh, rumen um, metabolism, one saturated fatty acid, especially linoleic acid, which is the predominant uh, fatty acid found in corn, corn products, oil seeds. Um, and so, you know, we know if we get too much unsaturated fat, we know if we get low rumen pH, so tending toward acidosis, we know if we get mycotoxin issues, uh, I think wild yeast issues. So there are definitely forage factors that come into play. You know, we've, we've learned that we are more at risk for low milk fat. So, and uh, we've also learned that if we can change the diet or change some of those factors, we can recover that milk fat in about that, say, milk fat depression, right? So three, I'll just say three, four, three, three in a Holstein, you know, we can recover that within 10 to 14 days, typically. And it's really kind of interesting. It's like clockwork. And I, you know, Corwin, you probably haven't had to rescue too many milk fats lately, but, you know, back a number of years ago when we were learning about all this stuff, it was kind of handy to, to under, have an understanding of this biology to then kind of guide us a bit in troubleshooting. Yeah, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, from a field standpoint that has really come to the forefront and it goes back many years, but uh, I think, you know, my focus and I think a lot of nutritionists focus anymore is is fiber digestibility in these diets and having, having high fiber digestibility. We feed, you know, I tend to feed heavy corn silage diets, uh, 70 to 80 percent of the forage dry matter base being uh, being corn silage dry matter, and then the other 20 or so percent being uh, uh, either grass silage or uh, alfalfa uh, silage. And fiber digestibility from a rumen health standpoint and just having acetate production and everything coming from that side of the, of the uh, nutrition equation just makes a huge difference. And, um, you know, a focus always every year is timely harvest on on haylages and getting highly digestible corn silage put in in the fall to uh, to get the right forage mix and then we can run these diets at you know 60 plus percent forage uh, and get the kind of fiber digestibility that really really drives a rumen and and maximize helps maximize microbial protein production which is huge on the on the particularly the milk protein side of the equation. 
Yeah, it was interesting. Kevin Harvatine, again, I mentioned Kevin, he's at Penn State, um, did a really interesting study a few years ago where he actually infused acetate into the rumen of cows and took uh, milk fat. And these were within ranges that would be possible, I think, with 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 highly digestible fibers. You mentioned, you know, took these cows from a three nine to about a four two percent. Uh, you know, you know, butter fat at the same milk yields. So of course, fat yields from at the same time. So I think, you know, the cases of, of highly digestible fiber, you know, makes sense here, right? Because you can drive some of that. Now that's not going to necessarily rescue a low milk fat. You got other stuff going on there, but in terms of getting a little bit more, I think that makes sense. And that's a, that's a logical approach. You know, talking about the importance of uh, high quality forages, Corwin, do you, do you get involved in, and actually consulting on on growing the forages and, and the and the corn? I will be the first to say that I'm not an agronomist. I make that very clear, but definitely uh, trying to team up with the agronomists working on client farms, uh, looking what our, our land base will best support. Uh, and then on variety selection, trying to look at varietal choices that'll yield both both harvest yield along with with high fiber digestibility uh, and starch has still got to come along with that as far as the corn silage side of the equation where I probably get involved in from a day-to-day -day standpoint though is just consistently having the conversation with clients about timely harvest and getting forages put up with the right kind of dry matters getting bunks put in properly, proper packing, all the things that go into good silage making so that we end up with, with forages that deliver the kind of, kind of uh, feed that, that we as nutritionists can best work with. So one of the things too, we'll say on milk fat here before we kind of shift gears to milk protein, we tend to forget that, uh, or at least I as a nutritionist, right, that, that indeed components are heritable. Right. And Corwin, I know you've you've spent some time thinking about genetics or, or maybe some of your herds think about genetics and how you how they also use those strategies to try to improve component yields, um, not just milk yield, but also component yields over time. No, no question about it. When we look at a, across our client base, uh, those herds that year round, um, you know, we're going to have seasonal differences. We're going to have seasonal rhythms in both butterfat percent and, and protein percent. But year round, the herds that will tend to be at the higher end of both of those protein percent and, and butterfat percent, they have paid attention over the last 10 to 20 years on both percent and yield of butterfat and protein. That's been part of their genetic program. And I think it's an area that in some cases, producers have maybe not paid quite as much attention to and uh, those herds will differentiate themselves, no, no question about it. Uh, you know, the, the, the 3839 herd versus the 4041 Holstein herd, I'm a firm believer that a, a fair amount of that in many cases is a genetic potential difference uh, between those herds. Corwin, have you, along those lines, have you seen any shift away uh, to, to crossbreeding? bring in some of the colored breed genetics? Um, we haven't seen it in, in our client base to a great degree. We have a couple of herds that have gone the Hojo route to a certain degree. Um, hasn't hit the Northeast like it it has hit the Midwest. Uh, I, I don't have an answer for why that is. Uh, no question that we are seeing more Jersey cows in the dairy population here in the Northeast over the last few years. Um, some of that just lately has been driven a little bit by base programs um, and land base uh, issues also, just uh, how many cows can our, can our land base uh, handle. And so uh, we have seen some more Jersey activity here in the Northeast, but, but the crossbreed is not hit here quite as much as it has uh, other parts of the country. I want to go back to one factor, Corwin. You mentioned seasonality for, for a minute. And that's, that's boy, the seasonality of components is, is highly conserved across year to year. I mean, obviously it may vary a little bit in amplitude one year versus the next, but 
you know, when I look at when I look at data and, and again some of the stuff Kevin summarized and things like that, I mean, you know, in the springtime, you know, late winter, early spring, the components start to slide. And you know, you can get and that's before any meaningful heat stress whatsoever. So it's 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 not really a heat stress deal, at least not initially anyway. But you can get a swing of three points of of butterfat high to low and uh, and then recover that in the you know in the fall and into the early winter. And uh, it's gotta be it's gotta be frustrating as nutritionists, or or at least I know I have discussion with herds about, hey, just remember you're fighting mother nature here in the spray. You may be sliding in your in your component percentages, but you're fighting mother nature here to some extent. Do most producers uh, understand that? Uh, they do, but they don't want to admit it. I <laughs> don't want to accept it. <laughs> they don't want to uh, uh, happily accept it is maybe the way to put it. No, quite honestly, Tom, that's a discussion that's going on right now. You know, the, the three, two proteins are down to the three ones and the, the, the four, four, one, four, two fats are, are down to, you know, the three nine fives and fours and four ones. So we're, we're beginning to see that seasonal seasonal change as we speak here this evening. Um, and it's a, it's a conversation that continue to, to have with producers on a yearly basis. Uh, they don't like to hear excuses from the nutritionists, but uh, hopefully we get the message across that it, it is mother nature and it is biology. Um, I think one of the things on on the butterfat side that has helped to a certain degree, um, we will, you know, myself, I, I will vary my my fat uh, type of feeding as we come into the spring and summer months, getting more uh, palmitic uh, uh, fatty acid into these cows, the palm oil type fats, to see if I can use it get some direct impact on, on butterfat and, and try to maintain that a little bit better as we go through these seasonal fluctuations. Do your, do your feeding recommendations vary depending on the economics of fat and protein to the producer? Um, they do. Um, I think you start getting protein values down below two and a half dollars a pound of protein. Um, I begin to question maybe some of my amino acid uh, inclusion into diets. Um, They're easy decisions for me to be chasing protein as you get into that $2.80, $3 protein values um, to be looking hard at, you know, do I have the amino acid profiles correct on the, on the milk protein side of things? Um, butterfat, where butterfat isn't nearly worth as much, but I think in some cases, in a lot of cases with butterfat, that tends to be more overall nutrition based. Am I getting the right amount of fiber and digestible fiber into those cows? Do I have a healthy rumen? Um, are we dealing with slug feeding issues? I have a herd right now that uh, we just made some changes in feeding management and all. And uh, we've seen uh, a response in, in milk fat due to some feeding management changes, getting more bunk space for cows in a, in an overcrowded pin situation. And, uh, you look at some of the work, uh, up at minor Institute over the last few years and, and other work that's been done rel- relative to overcrowding and, and slug feeding. And, and that's certainly going to have a, a negative impact, particularly in my opinion on the, on the milk fat side of things. So, uh, I think there are management things, dietary, basic dietary things from a fiber and rumen health standpoint that, that I can chase after and don't have to spend a lot of money on the, on the milk fat side, uh, maybe quite as much as over on the, on the milk protein side, but the, but the, the heavier palm feeding though, uh, has been beneficial to help maintain some of that seasonal butterfat change that we see. And right now, uh, all dry fats are expensive. So, feeding a little more palm really hasn't seemed to make a huge economic difference uh, 
in terms of the overall fat uh, supplementation in these diets from a from a cost standpoint. How much palm are you trying to get into them, Corwin? When it is oh, cost be up uh, anywhere from uh, half a pound to maybe as high as three quarters of a pound in some herds. Um, my experience with the heavy palms is just, you know, my experience. I don't know what other nutritionists see. If I go too heavy on the palm at times, it, my experience has been it does what it's supposed to do. It goes and makes butter fat. And I have gotten myself in a little bit of trouble in a couple of situations over the years where I've almost gone too heavy on it and lost some body condition in the herd. So I've had to, had to balance those two from time to time to make sure that uh, I'm not not overdoing it and not uh, sacrificing some body condition, reproductive performance, et cetera. You also mentioned that you're manipulating uh, amino acids to chase the milk protein. Can you give us an idea of, of uh, what kind of supplements you're using and what kind of levels are you looking at? Well, trying to, you know, I, I use the NDS program, so kind of following some of their, their basic guidelines, um, trying to uh, uh, use some bo both uh, uh, methionine sources and when the program calls for it, a little bit of lysine uh, supplementation also. Um, basically following some of the basic uh, NDS guidelines, trying to get my... Uh, my uh, methionine ratio to, to uh, uh, ME uh, up around 1.08, 1 1.1 uh, in the NDS program has is, is seemed to work well for me. Um, and then tending to be in that two point, high 2.6, low 2.7 lysine to methionine type of ratio. So just, you know, Basic uh, CNCPS NDS guidelines along mm -hmm. those lines have worked pretty well. Um, and then you let the cows tell you and you, you manipulate mm -hmm. things uh, from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Corwin's using some of the newer work that, you know, Mike Van Amberg really is kind of responsible for, where he's kind of integrated in amino acid supply with energy. And I think that conceptually that's really attractive because if you look at the first God, I don't know, 25 years of amino acid balancing for milk protein. It was just all about lysine methionine or, you know, percent of MP, maybe grams, what have you. And, and so that's kind of where the discussions began and ended with uh, milk protein strategies. And yet we know that energy is, is really, you know, protein synthesis is energy driven. You need to have the amino acids, but it makes sense to line it up with energy and, uh, and so it's been kind of interesting just to, to, to kind of play with this new approach out there a bit. Um, and, and again, conceptually, as I said, it's, it's quite attractive. So again, we, we, we always seek to, to kind of keep moving things ahead. Right. So. Mm -hmm. I, I think we see more consistent responses in the field with that approach too. It would make sense, right? It makes sense. And then of course it also goes back to where corn started out, right? It goes back to, Room fermentation, digestible fiber, digestible carbohydrate, you know, carbohydrate digestibility, fermentability in the rumen, you know, really driving, you know, energy status, energy supply uh, to the cow. So, and, and, you know, you put the amino acids with that and, you know, I think you are set up for a, a pretty decent response potentially. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing that, uh, that NDS has really pointed out to me, and I know Mike Van Amberg is, you know, as, as he talks about, the CPS approach overall, whether it be NDS or AMTS or, or other programs, is is really knowing what true dry matter intake is in these groups of cows. And uh, that's something that I've really been tightening the screws down on is, is really paying attention to where these herds are at on a, on a pin by pin, TMR by TMR basis, as far as what true dry matter intakes are to make sure that I get things dialed in as, as tightly as I possibly can. Cause huge differences in those programs between that group that's maybe at 64 pounds of intake versus the group that's at 60 pounds of intake. Um, so that's, that's been one thing that NDS has really, really shown me. I've got to 
got to really pay attention to uh, to to make make the numbers fit what the cows are telling me at the end of the day. So, what are some of your better dairymen doing to make sure that they're 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 maximizing dry matter intake? You know, you've heard horror stories of the nutritionist showing up and you got an empty bog and those kinds of things. What, what are some of the best practices they're employing? Well, I don't know how any herd can manage, you know, especially a herd of any kind of size without some kind of a, a uh, TMR uh, tracking program on their mixer wagon, whether it be feed watch or easy feed or TMR tracker, feed supervisor, whatever it might be, you know, is there, is there good data that that I, I as a nutritionist have to work with, and that their their feed crew has to, has to work with? So that's that's first and foremost in in my book. Um, as far as monitoring things, um, I am in the process of getting more and more cameras put in, looking over feed bunks, so we can look at them twenty four hours a day and make sure that feed's getting pushed up, that we're not shorting cows on feed, that we're not having excess refusals. I mean, there's both sides of the equation. And I think one of the things that I know we talk about in our group quite a bit is, I think we've gotta be careful that we don't exceed what dry matter intakes really should be. Um, I know at, at times, you know, I'll, I'll visit with some people and they'll they'll brag about their 68-pound intakes and their cows are making the same milk as a herd that's, you know, got high cows at 62 pounds of intake. I think we could really go overboard in some cases um, and, and got to watch that we're, you know, every pound of dry matter these days is is not cheap with the current feed costs we have. So, again, coming back to that, energy corrected bulk relative to feed efficiency is a number that doesn't in some ways it doesn't directly pay the bills but it gives you an idea of what the what the biology of that nutrition is is accomplishing on a day-to-day -day basis but uh, now the cameras are i'm i'm getting bigger and bigger on those uh to make sure that we've got a 24-hour eye on what's happening at the feed bunk Mm-hmm. So what? So no, that's a good point, Corwin. It's it, at, from an efficiency standpoint, we could go too far the other way with 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 high intake. So what? Uh, what are some you know? What are some things we can do to to maybe improve our milk production efficiency? To improve the milk production efficiency? Yep. Yeah, you talked about that as a metric earlier, right? Your energy corrected feed efficiency. Yep. Um, well, <laughs> I think one of the things that I constantly have a conversation with my clients is, is our herd too young? Um, I think that's one area that I don't, I can't speak to other parts of the country, but here in the Northeast, 2.1, 2.2 lactations is about the herd average as we go across the Northeast. It's way too young way too young in my opinion. We should be up in the 2.4 to 2.6 average lactation. Um, and that's that's a constant uh, a constant conversation I have with clients. Now, in an expanding herd, yes, you're going to have a younger herd because you're constantly growing the herd, bringing in, you know, two-year-olds to, to grow the herd and all. But in, in herds that are mature, and they are maxed out on, on cow numbers. Um, to be running 2.1, 2.2 lactations to me is unacceptable. We need to be keeping cows around longer and maximizing, maximizing lactations per cow as best we can. Um, so that's an area that, that I think has a lot of opportunity in a lot of, a lot of herds. Because those older cows, we know, they, they make more milk, plain and simple. And uh, they're more efficient. They're not growing. Uh, their feed efficiency because of, of not eating it up in growth activity as a, as a younger cow would. Uh, just a lot of positives there. So that's an area that I, I focus in a lot with, 
with my herds that are in that that static herd size uh, situation these days. Yeah. Well, it really influences too how many heifers you got to have, right? The Absolutely. Heifer level. I mean, that's uh, that's a you know, it was it seems like it wasn't that long ago where you'd almost see maybe not that many fewer heifers than cows on a, on a dairy, and, and definitely we're seeing that number come down as people think about that. I don't know if you have a sweet spot for where you'd like to be heifers to cows and, and things like that, but um, depending on call rates in the herd and, and um, you know, how they do with 60 day call rates and things like that. I think uh, a heifer inventory anywhere between 65 and 75% of total cow numbers is a very real, real number to, to be or area to be working in. And for a long time, we've had herds at 90 to 110% of heifers to cows. And man, it's a lot of money sitting out there in a heifer inventory. And, and, and the problem we've had is that when these herds become static and they, they have those kind of heifer numbers, um, who gets pushed out? You got a fresh heifer and it's the older cows that get pushed out unless they've really got a market to sell springing heifers which doesn't tend to tend to be the case in most cases. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity in, in herd age and, and average lactation number. So Carl, and again, that's gonna, that's gonna contribute to just sheer pounds of fat and pounds of protein going out the, out the door, just because those older cows are producing, producing more. Circle back, Cora, maybe on some, you know, you, you alluded to a little bit of it, but, you know, it's certainly something I've run into quite a bit over time is, is, you know, we can focus on, you know, what's on paper for the diet and, and things like that, but, you know, how, you know, how it's either implemented at the farm level and or other management factors can just make such a big difference um, in, in outcomes. I mean, I think about, you know, you talked a little bit before about overcrowding and, you know, we know from lots of work at Minor and British Columbia and other places that, you know, in Guelph with Trevor DeVries that, you know, cows that are overstocked, they slug feed, you know, that certainly has an impact on the, on the rumen environment. Um, I think about dairies that, you know, uh, say we're going to, we're going to feed to a zero, zero, you know, slick bunk, right. Zero refusal. And they combine, you know, I'm thinking I've got one dairy in my head from a few years ago that they can never, they were never seen to make components. Right. And, and it frustrated them, but you know, they were 30% overcrowded in a, in a six row barn configuration. Um, you know, they were, and they were feeding to a, to a slick bunk or trying to feed to a slick bunk. Now, again, and I think it's questionable how well dairies can really do that. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, you just end up in situations where you're, where we have on farm factors that are affecting how those cows are consuming feed and probably impacting that room and environment. And, uh, um, again, it sounds like, you know, you makes makes certainly make progress on that. Cameras seem like a great idea in a lot of cases as you're trying to, trying to manage some of that. And of course, obviously our, our feeding management software systems can, can really help us there too. No, and I think we probably, in a lot of cases, I know some of the work that Trevor, Trevor DeVries has done, um, on a lot of herds, we're, we're probably just not pushing up feed nearly as many times a day as what we should. Uh, I think the, the common thought process, eh, if we push it up six times a day, that probably will cover us. It's If you really want to have healthy cows that are going to be efficient, and uh, especially in these overcrowding situations, you're you're probably looking, in my opinion, with, with the research work that's been done out there and just what I see on client farms I work with, that if we're not at close to 12 times a day, we're probably not getting the job done the way we ought to be. Corin, how are, how are those uh, cameras being monitored? Well, um, the camera system, they're, they're basically a, a continuous uh, recording. You can pretty easily, with the systems I'm seeing now, you can go back, you know, two days, three days. You can go back 10 hours. You can go back 12 hours. Okay. And just a, a matter of taking the time to do it. So, um, you know, trying to get managers to do it, uh, to their benefit is is certainly part of the discussion. And then when I'm on the farm, uh, you know, I'll certainly spend a little bit of time just taking a look at the last last couple of days uh, to just see what the activity has been like. Mm -hmm. um, 
there is a system out there now. Um, it's uh, been brought to the attention of a couple of my clients. Uh, neither one have moved on it at this point in time, but I know there's some systems uh, out in California and in other parts of the country where it's it's basically a minute by minute, 24 hour a day uh, feed monitoring uh, camera system. Um, and I, I think that kind of technology is is probably going to be more common as we go go forward here. Uh, just a matter of uh, producers trying to justify the cost of those kind of systems. But I think uh, as as we see more of those types of things come along, more of that technology will, will come into place, I'm sure. Corwin, one of the things you and I have talked about is, uh, you know, of course, every year seems to bring a new wrinkle. The last year brought a really big wrinkle, but, you know, with with COVID and changes in milk di dynamics of milk supply and things like that, of course, you know, most of the milk in the Northeast is now under some sort of base program. And, you know, curious on your perspectives in terms of how that's affected, how you think about components anyway and managing for components at the herd level. In the last two weeks i've had conversations with two different clients both shipping to the same co-op asking me how do we reduce milk production by a couple of pounds per cow per day i can honestly say in the many years i have done this i've never been asked a question like that <laughs> it's always how do we get two more pounds out of these cows not how do we reduce production because the penalty they're getting for that overbased milk is pretty severe so, you know, our, our approach is definitely, again, this focus on components. Every pound of milk that goes out there, how can we have the best value to it relative to percent of fat and percent of protein in it? Um, I am not in the position at this point in time to make drastic changes in diets that I'm going to say is going to reduce milk by one or two pounds per cow. Um, that's not an easy, easy thing to do from a biology standpoint. Um, but, um, you know, we're trying to, the changes I'm making in those herds though, is very slow increments, a little more forage, a little, little less starch, um, maybe a little less MP. I'm not shorting them on the MP at this point in time probably doing it more over on the starch side of the equation, running a little more forage in those diets, and we're just going to do it slowly and incrementally and uh, see what the see what the cows tell us. Uh, so that's kind of been the approach at this point in time. And, uh, you know, we get the double whammy of, uh, of high commodity prices on the corn and protein side of things too, so helping to cheapen those diets up just a, just a touch at the same time. But uh, no, very, very different uh, dynamic that we've been in for the last uh, 16 or so months of, uh, of these base programs. And not that we weren't focusing on components before, but definitely putting more of a focus uh, due to the base program uh, issues that we we're dealing with now. Wouldn't it be more efficient just to kind of reduce uh, the cow population a little bit and, and you know, so, maximize their output? Yeah, and that's, that's, that's a good question, Scott. And so I've got, I've got the smallest herd I work with, 250 cows. Uh, we, we were 99.2 pounds of milk shipped last month. And the co-op they ship to is is a severe penalty on their overbased milk. They sold a few cows. They they did sell a few cows. Another co-op with a different base program. Um, we're still uh, on the overbased penalty. We're still able to cover our variable cost. So the producers look at, eh, do I really want to cut cow numbers? uh to anything severe because the penalty just isn't that great relative to what my my variable costs are on a day in a day out basis um when this all came about 
in March of, of 2020, yes, we did go through and there were definitely some culling activities took place early on. And there were probably cows that should have been shipped even before the base program you know, came about. But as we have seen in the past with milk diversion programs and other programs, we sold 45 cows within 15 days and the milk tank didn't change. Mm-hmm. Kind of mm-hmm. told you what overcrowding was doing. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yep. um, so yeah, these, and the other problem is the, the real dilemma in all this for the producers, in my opinion, and I think they would say the, the same thing because they've, they've said this to me, is they don't know month to month or what 2022 is going to bring. So if I sell 200 cows and then all of a sudden yeah. the program goes away, well, I've just shot myself in the foot. Because there is no idea of what the what next month or what the next six months or what the twelve months is going to bring relative to these space programs. Yeah, that's going to be my next uh, question. Is this the new normal? Do we do we have a, a clue or at least any any theories, Tom, on on or, or Corwin on what we can expect in the future with these space programs? I I don't have a clue, Scott. I, I don't, yeah. and I don't think my producers could tell you they have a clue either. Yeah, Scott, I don't have any inside knowledge, but, you know, I think that, you know, there's been, I think, I think once they're, now that they're in, right, I think they're in, I think the co-ops are going to vary them based on, you know, they can, they can, you know, you know, they can, they can move the dial up and down, right, but, but I think, I think the fact that they're in, um, I don't think they're going anywhere, but that's, that's just conjecture and opinion. I, I would tend to agree with that, that sentiment, Tom. I think the one thing that it definitely at this point in time is we are not going to see any expansions of any, any sort here in the Northeast. Hmm. Clay, I think we need to find maybe a a milk processor to bring onto the exchange some night and and talk about this. Yeah. I would totally and wholeheartedly (laughs) support that because that's where we're, that's where we're, where we are missing the boat here is we need milk processing capability to, handle what we can do here in the Northeast. Absolutely. So one of the things that we're seeing, you know, I, you know, I sit in my Morrison Hall office and and I can, if I'm in that office, I can look over at uh, food science and Dave Barbano is there. And Dave's been, been making a lot of, a lot of, a lot of um, drawing attention to and really developing, uh, I would say enhanced milk composition uh, testing, right? I mean, we've gotten things like fat and protein and, mercury nitrogen and total solids and mercury you know and, and lactose for you know somatic cell for 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 eons but now we're getting more detailed uh testing anyway and so we're actually talking about the fatty acids fractions so things like de novo fatty acids those are the fatty acids that made the mammary gland from from the, you know basically from the rumen from things like acetate production of the rumen like Corwin talked about uh, preformed, which come from the diet largely, a little bit from body fat potentially in a fresh cow, and mixed, which are really in two different places. And so, you know, that's becoming more and more prevalent out there. Um, and at this point, a, a pretty good chunk of the herds in in the Northeast are now receiving that information. So, um, you know, one of the things I mean, Corin and I've wrestled with this a little bit. I think you know, um, you know, his herds are starting to get it, but uh, Miner Institute's done some nice work and collaborated with Dave and has shown their, you know, their relationships of things like de novo fatty acids and and others with not only the overall milk fat but milk protein. And people are increasingly looking at de novos maybe as an indicator of rumen efficiency, maybe rumen health, but certainly just how well are we doing on those rumens. You know, Tom, you know, if you don't mind, before we kind of get dive into that, uh, Dr. Zimmerman the other day gave me a, a very nice, succinct uh, tutorial uh, talking about the difference between de novo and, and, and consumed fatty acids and how they're they're built. That really uh, solidified it in my mind. It helped me understand it a bit. I was just wondering if he might might kind of share that with us real quick. Yeah, go for it, Clay, because I, yeah. I, I'd, like, I'd like a succinct. I don't think I did. I'd like you to learn that. something, Clay. Yeah. <laughs> So, Scott, to answer your question, the, these de novo fatty acids are, you know, they're actually built in the mammary gland uh, using either acetate or beta-hydroxybutyrate as their, at, at, as the skeleton to start with. And then 
we add two, you know, two carbons at a time. So basically anything from, you know, four carbons up to 16 carbons can be produced, can be formed in the mammary gland. They're, they're your de novo fatty acids. So as Tom alluded to earlier, when he's talking about Kevin Harvatine's research, if we can increase acetate production, you know, good rumen function will increase de novo fatty acids in the milk. Uh, the preformed fatty acids then are your 16 and 18 carbon fatty acids. So they come either directly from the diet or as, as Tom said earlier, they're, they're from adipose tissue mobilization in these fresh cows. So your C18s, we know, you know, those are preformed fatty acids. Everything up to 16 carbon fatty acids we know are de novo and your C16s come from both sources. So they are, we refer to those as, as, as the mixed fatty acid pool, mm -hmm. your C16s. Yeah. So Tom, the, what should we do with this information? There's new information now coming out to these dairy producers and nutritionists. What, what do we, how do we utilize this information? Yeah, I think to, to me anyway, um, I mean, granted, you know, these fractions are all going to correlate with total milk fat product or total milk fat percentage, right? They're all going to kind of move up and down together. You know, that said, if we're in a, a situation of, of the more milk fat depression type scenario, they all go down, but the de novos go down actually proportionally more. And so, you know, it kind of helps us identify where that where that issue may be, um, or at least. And there's some other indices that they that they get relative to unsaturated fatty acids that may actually help us troubleshoot that a little bit further. Just dial that on even a bit further. You know, I'm curious as as again, as more herds have that information, right? We're getting into summertime now. We're in summertime now. It was 90 degrees here uh, last week and humid. Um, you know, our herds that are they're in more heat stress scenarios um, are you know can, are we going to use those as kind of a, a gauge in terms of how much of an impact we might be having on those rumens in that in those heat stress environments? Again, I don't know that for sure, but I think it's it's worthy to kind of think about that and, and maybe use that at the herd level to to be able to, to compare herds with each other relative to okay one herd changes a lot in these in some of these metrics and other herds may not change as much uh, if, if we're not seeing the same swings in environment or feeding management or things like that but there there is there is a seasonal variation in de novos mm -hmm. that follows the regular seasonal fat <clears throat> protein percent curves correct yeah if you, if you look at kevin's work right i mean the, the you know look at the seasonal variation a lot of that is is tied to de novo and probably the mixed pool, less so with the with the preformed, and that's kind of interesting. So, you know, it does look like there may be some. And again, why that is, that's a good question. Um, uh, you know, because you don't know as you having. I mean, I don't know as I think about rumen function changing in the spring, early spring anyway. Um, obviously, you can make the case in a heat stress uh, scenario that you might see some changes there, but. It's, it's something where, you know, it's like everything else is you have the information and we all wrestle with it um, going forward. We learn more about exactly how we use it and how, in fact, how useful, you know, you know, how useful it is and what it helps us do at the herd level. It's interesting you say that, Clay, because I was just looking at one of my herds this morning that Tom was actually out on, on with me this, this past winter and and uh, that herd during the winter, and I'm going to put till probably a month ago, our de novos, 0.92 to 0.98, just day in and day out. And I looked at them this morning, and I'm down to the low to mid 0.8s. I'll be walking those cows tomorrow. I'm really curious. And, and, and have I made any major diet changes or anything? No. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious to go walk the cows tomorrow and, and see if I see anything. Yes, those novos have come down. Um, you know, fat has gone from 41412 to 40, you know, in that same time frame there. But boy, I, I was really shocked how much the de novo levels had, had dropped. Um, and this is actually, in my opinion, probably one of my better heat stress managed surge sprinklers lots of fans and all uh, so i'm 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 still scratching my head a lot about what some of those numbers are really telling me day in and day out and, and what do i do with them from a 
a dietary change standpoint. I, I'm, I'm not there yet. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting topic, another, another tool in the toolbox potentially, but we need to learn more. I think we need to learn more about what to do with the data. So Tom, you can help us out there. So, you know, Heather Dan's done some nice work there, right? So miners done some nice work where they, you know, where you think the combination of the low butterfat test plus the low de novo, that's clearly kind of a milk fat depression type scenario and kind of know how to get on in that direction. Um, you know, if it's high butterfat test and high de novo, we, you know, it's, you know, things Heather would say, keep up the good work, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, but when you have, let's say, low de novo yet fat test is decent, well, you know, are you, are you are you buying some of that butter fat with you know some of the dry fats and things like that? And is there an opportunity to do better in the rumen? Um, you know, likewise, if if butter fat is 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 just kind of okay, but de novo's are high, maybe there's an opportunity for some for some of the high palm fat sources and things like that. So I think there's you know that's really her. I'm just presenting what she's really conceived there, but it's kind of resonated with me and it's, I think it's a good starting point, but, you know, um, you know, again, we, we just, as we, as we get this information on more and more herds, um, we'll be able to, to understand how and, and where to use it. I think even better. I love how much Tom is aware of and make you aware, Clay. I know, uh, Jess McCart up at the vet school here at Cornell is, uh, She's looking at that, working with Dave Barbano on looking at that type of information from a, a herd health standpoint, too. So it'll be interesting to see what Jess and her group, uh, you know, if anything comes out of the, the herd health side of it relative to some of this uh, data. Gentlemen, time has flown by and uh, they just called last call. Are there <laughs> any uh, any key items that, that, that you guys would like to discuss before we we close this out no i just uh appreciate the invitation scott and clay uh this is uh this is a good conversation this evening uh it's it's been an eye-opener for me over the last few years that uh how much components uh when you talk to the bankers that we work with um you know look at the milk checks that our clients deal with you're looking at uh Fat and protein making up, uh, depending on the year and the time of the year, anywhere from 85 to, I think, upwards of 92, 93% of the milk check. So this is this is huge yeah, uh, from a financial standpoint and, and something that we've, we've got to just continue to pay attention to within the industry to, to make the, the financial side of the equation more positive for these guys. Any final thoughts for nutritionists and dairymen out there? A couple uh, takeaways you'd like to leave with them? Uh, good fiber digestibility. To me, that's the key to any nutrition program. And feeding management. Keeping, you know, we deal with a lot of overcrowded barns here. That's not going to change. But can we can we get our feeders and feeding management into a routine that we are not slug feeding that any cow at any time that wants to go up and eat has got the ability to do that. I think those are those are two key things that we continue to 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 press with our our clients day in and day out. Mm -hmm. Tom, a couple things from you, uh, key takeaways for. Uh, the audience. And then I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the upcoming Cornell Nutrition Conference, when that is, and and uh, why someone uh, would might want to come to that, which is one of the premier nutrition uh, conferences in the country, by the way. Yeah. So, you know, again, just I think understanding the, the you know, components, you know, really key in on component yields um, and feed efficiency, as Corwin talked about, component efficiency, um, it's, that's really, really important the herd level and, and lots of things affect that. Um, you know, I think herds, herds need to recognize that as we talked about with seasonality, you're fighting biology, certain parts of the year. Um, and sometimes holding stat steady is actually a win, right. During some of these parts, parts of the year. And, and so, you know, and I think, you know, those are, those are some key things. Um, you know, I think, you know, relative to Cornell Nutrition Conference, we are, Excited to be in person this year. Uh, so we will be October 19th to the 21st, I think are the dates in Syracuse. It's the usual Tuesday through Thursday uh, format that we traditionally have done. Um, 
Of course, New York is opening up quickly on lots of things relative to COVID uh, restrictions and things like that. Um, and I expect things will be even more open by, by then. We are planning to do a, a virtual kind of live stream of the conference as well for, for those in other parts of the world or otherwise wouldn't, uh, either might not be able to attend um, or would like to attend, but just wouldn't attend in person. But I don't think that's going to take too much away from our in-person audience. I think we're ready to be um, ready to be not in front of computer screens um, all the time and have the chance to interact with each other as, as the networking is, is, is such an important part of those conferences and events. And we're really looking forward to getting back to that. Yeah, excellent. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank both of you uh, for joining us here at the Exchange tonight. This has been uh, a lot of fun. I could stay here all night and, and, and talk with you gentlemen. Uh, you know, impacting dairy farmer profitability is so important. It's, it's always changing and, and bringing this kind of information is very important. So we appreciate you for that. And, and we'd like to bring you back sometime if you guys are open to it. Uh, the, the, the pub is always open. Uh, so I'd also like to thank our loyal listeners for stopping by to the exchange uh, once again to spend some time with us. And if you like what you heard, please remember to drop us a five-star rating on your way out. Don't forget to request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt. I think, gentlemen, you guys should both have one of those on the way if you haven't received it already. Don't forget to uh, subscribe to the Real Science Exchange on your favorite podcast platform. Our Real Science Lecture Series of Webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month. Visit balchemanh.com slash realscience to see upcoming events and past topics. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends.